What's up, strength coaches? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. We have Dr. Kelly Sturrett on the show. Um, thank you very much for coming by and sharing some of your wealth of knowledge. First question I have for you, jumping right into it, the change from mobility wad to the ready state. I don't know uh, when that occurred until most recently. Why the, the change for anybody that um, is unaware? First of all, mobility sort of became this nebulous term like core or extreme and it just sort of was being co-opted and so people were people would be like deadlifting and be like i'm doing mobility and i was like hold up hold up right <laughs> it's not what we meant <laughs> and um the second thing is this wad piece so no one was using mobility the only person who had ever used the word mobility was eric cressy he made a dvd back in the day called Mo magnificent mobility and i was like we're gonna take this word and blow it up because it's not stretching, which athletes didn't do, didn't believe in, didn't love. Like stretching is like flossing, you know what I mean? Like you really just trying to get people to do something they don't want to do. And then flexibility really didn't have clear objective measures either. And what we tried to do at the time was say, hey, look, you should be able to access your native range of motion. What every physical therapist, physician, this is not controversial. I'm not asking you to be Simone Biles. I'm not asking you to do long lever splits. I'm just saying, your hip moves this much and why doesn't your hip move the way it's supposed to move? So what are our tools to get you back there so that you can then control that range? And that's what, at least what we had here was an objective measure of range of motion. And then ultimately what you want to do with that range of motion, which was go fast, lift weights, generate more wattage. And so the two things I could hang my hat on was, do you have access to your range of motion? Can we improve your biomotor output? Those are the two objective measures. So I was so clever. I'm like, I'm so clever with this word mobility. No one's using it. It's brand new. And then WAD, we were the first WAD anything. So there was no ROM WAD. There was no Go WAD. There was no sobriety WAD. There's no faith. There was a thousand WADs. And, and at some point I was like, my thing that I'm pouring my heart into and going around the world teaching and working on these has become co-opted and devalued. And two other people in the, in the space, ROMWAD and GOWAD, ROMWAD was sort of now as pliability. And then the other company, GOWAD, which actually took our course, took our book, made an app out of it, and then just called themselves GOWAD. And I was like, what the hell? So one of the things we wanted to do is say, hey, look, we have been working in performance alongside of the best coaches, the best athletes on the planet, trying to say what's essential. How do we take those lessons in performance and sport and actually treat that like science and say, let's take these lessons and then see if we can come back and transmute and transform our community, our society, our local teams, our kids kickball. Like that's what we should be doing. And if you look at what's happened in diet, for example, we have standard athletic diet bullshery, right? Then out of high performance and the people working high performance, we get things like keto, we get things like paleo, we get things like, you know, people really starting to look at macros. We start to see that there's a whole lot of different interventions and we've come back to this revolution in high performance nutrition, which is whole foods. And that's literally what we're feeding the fastest men and women on the planet, whole foods. So what we've seen is even in nutrition, I would, I would posture that so much of our current understanding of nutrition has come out of sports, trying to help people run further, lift more weights, win more premier league championships. Um, there's a lot of complex things that happen when people eat together, they tend to feel better and more amicable and be in a tighter society. There's a whole lot of follow on effects. 
But what we wanted to do with what we were learning in these sports around position and restoration of position and technique was then transmute that to a greater audience. And we also wanted to sort of shuck off this CrossFit thing because CrossFit early on is not what it is now. And I love CrossFit and I work with CrossFit coaches and still working with CrossFit champions all the time. It's super cool. But I also, my other world, the 90% of my world is not CrossFit. And what we did is as soon as we attached WAD, I turned a lot of people off. So we were like, hey, let's take this moment and talk about what we really want to do, which is create a readiness so that you can do what you want to do. And we can also, as the node in your family, the node in your community, you could take these lessons and solve your, your daughter's knee pain or solve your training partner's back pain or help your mom move better off the floor. That's really what our intention is. That's unbelievable. And you talk about the CrossFit thing and I'm sure people ask you it a lot, but I, I still remember the video about, you know, getting icing wrong and the things that you've been kind of pushing forward, whether you'll admit it or not, you've been kind of ahead of head of the curve for lack of a better term. What had been the genesis? Like how had you been having these thoughts and the ability to, again, be ahead of the curve, whether you realize it or not? Oh, I just locked myself in a dark cave and contemplated the universe. <laughs> Remember, I work alongside really smart boys and girls. And we're always iterating, thinking, questioning what's better. Is there and what you'll never see us do though in this in this community I'm part of is you'll never see us shit talk people. We just don't believe in shit talking. We don't punch down, we don't shit talk. If we see something that we don't like, we just don't talk about it. Or we're like, huh, I wonder what problem they're trying to solve. We try to create curiosity out of it. And if someone comes with a better mousetrap, I'm down to see that mousetrap. Show me that mousetrap and I'll integrate that mousetrap into our model. So the ready state and ultimately becoming a supple leopard is really a model to help understand complex human movement. And then more importantly, dissociate the need for an expert to come in between you and your squat rack, you and your discus, you and your swim pool, who says, I am the only one who can help you move faster. How do we democratize that? How do we help athletes and coaches see start positions and finish positions, recognize those as components of range of motion? Taking a quick break from the show to tell you about our deal we have going on right now in December. If you sign up for Fundamentals Level 1, you will get one free year at Strength Coach Network. That's right. Sign up for Fundamentals, our 20-hour long-form education course that has information on every topic in strength and conditioning that will make you a better strength coach, regardless of the field that you're in. Not only if you're a strength coach, personal trainer, athletic trainer, physio, this is for you because all the education about progressions, regressions, motor learning, speed, agility, jumps, you name it, we have information in it. So sign up for Fundamentals, get a free year at Strength Coach Network. Click the link down below. Let's get back to the show. Minister to those missing range of motion or program appropriately so the person can control that range of motion. And again, didn't need a physical therapist, didn't need a doctor, didn't need a kinesiologist, didn't need computer vision. We needed a coach and an athlete, and that is the sacrosanct area on the planet. So I'm working alongside these people, and every once in a while, we would start to witness a pattern. We would see something and say, hey, can we translate this? And all I did was broadcast my thinking. And our, I learned early on that a good model this is the definition of a model. A model has to be able to explain current phenomenon. Why are we teaching benching? Why are we teaching shot putting? Why are we teaching sprinting like this? Why is swimming technique this way? It has to account for future phenomenon. It has to explain and predict what's going to happen with a person. If your quads are stiff, how will you run? 
what is likely to see a pattern of over overreaching if you're missing hip extension? What does that look like? We should be able to say if you are missing your stiff in the triceps, what is your bench going to look like? We should be able to answer that question. That's not crazy. If you don't have full extension in your shoulder at the bottom of a bench press, what is your bench going to do? We can predict that. And more importantly, we can start to see, hey, what are our tools to get back to that position? And what are our tools and techniques, our skill transfer exercise to reinforce your, your native skill? So part of what we're trying to do is say, hey, we're starting to identify patterns. So the model is, can I explain why my athletes are moving the way they do and why I coach the way I coach? Can I predict future movement phenomenon, which is transferability, which is the reason we got into the gym in the first place so we could be better athletes? And finally, can I communicate that to other coaches and the other professionals I work with and to the athlete? <clears throat> and at the heart of that model, because that's the definition of every model, so anytime someone has an ultimate program, whether that's GOTA or you're talking about starting strength, whether you're talking, again, anyone, that's FRC, it doesn't matter, FMS, anyone they should be able to explain why people are moving that way, predict future movement phenomenon, be able to communicate that language across. So other multiple coaches don't have to have a PhD in your, in your nuanced language. Then if you're a real coach, what you do is test, retest, and share. Test, retest, and share. I think this works. Let me test it again. Hey, I get you in the gym. We, we iterate. You're my coach. You're my training partner. We bounce back and forth. And then we're like, hey, this works. And then you bring everyone else in, test, retest, share. And, and you might have heard CrossFit say observable, measurable, repeatable. That's sort of an iteration of, an, of a model, right? We should be able to observe it. We should have objective measures. And what, what we have tried to do then in the ready state is say, here are clear objective models for what your shoulders should be able to do. Remember, just so everyone can be clear, let me, let me blow up exercise for you for a second here. Your shoulder does four things. It does four things. It goes overhead and it rotates, of course. It goes out in front of you, wherever that is. It goes out to the side, right? This is still out to the side. And wait for it. It goes all the way behind you, like you're sprinting or dipping or benching. So every movement that you see, whether you're David Weck and coiling, I should be able to explain that position. That's a front rack shape. Arm is bent, but in front. And my top arm is in an overhead position. I just happen to be side bending. So you get all confused. So the idea here is I should be able to take my model and drop it in on top of anyone else's movement theory, movement piece, and help to explain what's going on, understand what's happening in that place. And then we can move forward. And so that's really the objective measures. And then of course, the only thing I can really measure is not your pain. Cause that's so subjective, not your, Readiness, yeah. that's highly subjective. Your genetics are a component of that. What I can measure is how much wattage and power you put down. That's literally all I can see. And if I literally always come back to, can my athletes do this? Yes or no. That's why we're in the gym training. Not to only get physio physiologically stronger, but also to transfer positions and have better transfer to a sport. And did that sport get better? That's, that's all there is. And then however you want to do that is entirely up to you. And in fact, I'll say before I shut up that the coach is the center of the universe for me because the coach knows her athletes. She knows the tools that she has available to her. She understands the training age and the experience and the training loads and demands and the real life considerations of their athlete. That's called hyperlocality. 
So the best person in the world to solve these problems is the strength coach, not the position coach, not the sport coach, because they're trying to get kids to play ball or do a thing or learn, learn a technique to win a world championship. And it's really difficult to see someone's missing into rotation while they swim, unless you're a ninja. The strength coach can see everything. <clears throat> Talking about that with the coach and the athlete, how do you think that the pendulum may have swung too far with respect to technology? Because you talk about, you know, not being able to fully measure readiness with maybe HRV Omega Wave, and maybe you do believe in that. And we can talk about that here. But how do you handle the whole notion of too much technology? Because that's my opinion, that technology is almost taking away from that coach-athlete relationship. Yeah. You know, all technology, all tools are there to help me work as hard as I can and to have a better understanding of something. I think this is a way of thinking about it of session cost and session cost comes from an idea by Ben Ashworth, who was a premier physio, a premier soccer physio in the UK. He's the athletic shoulder. That's him. And he has this idea that every training volume session thing that we do imparts a cost, a training cost on the body. What I can do then is drop in HRV, genetics, sleep, nutrition, and say, how do I manage the adaptation response to that training? And those of you with monster HRVs and mom, you know, and, and it's a pretty powerful tool. We can predict your likelihood of playing an international high level soccer or footy or not based on your just genetic HRV. You can handle the volume or you can't. And we'll get there eventually because you just can't keep up with the other kids. I mean, we're gonna get there, but we have, suddenly we have these insights. But the idea is how do we limit session costs? So let me give you an example. I work with a, a university, turns out to be an incredible university, top tier team, top five team. When I talk to that team, I say to these women, do you think you're out working Stanford? Do you think you're outworking USC? Do you think you're outworking Chusum, UCLA? Do you think you think that your program is doing more work than those programs? Do they, does that other program think they're outworking you? That's impossible. Everyone now, it used to be that you could sneak in and be like, I'm going to outwork you. That ship has sailed. The density, the volumes, the craziness that we're seeing now is insane. What's up, strength coaches? Taking a quick break away from the show to let you know about our membership site. Not only do we at Strength Coach Network put out the Cheeky Midweeky, but we have a membership site where you gain access to a video library and a members-only forum. Inside the video library, you will have access to over 170 different lectures, which equals over 400 hours of content. Inside of these content, it is every sport you could think of and every topic in strength and conditioning. In our members-only forum, we have career advice and we have topics in strength and conditioning where coaches ask each other questions and we help each other inside the network. You can try the network out for 24 hours for $1 if you are not a member. Click the link down below and you will be able to check us out. So what we really can control with those athletes is their adaptation response to exercise. How do I reduce the session cost day to day so that we can handle greater volume? You might say recovery, but I'm looking at recovery. I'm looking at adaptation. So a little nuance there. But what I can do is I can out adapt you and I can bring in tools and technology to help me understand the cost of the training. And what we saw was, you know, you go smash yourself in the gym for three hours, you suck on the pitch. I'm like, okay, we can sort of measure that because the measurement is suckiness. So 
again, any tool that helps give insight into behaviors so that my athletes can work harder and the coach can get work harder and program more and my athletes can show up fresher. Oh, I just sound like Pavel who said a long time ago, whoever can do the most work and stay the freshest wins, right? That really is, is, is the magic. I mean, Floyd Landis, the cyclist, you know, once said, um, he's like, you know, whoever works the hardest wins. And someone's like, what about overtraining? It's like, you obviously didn't work hard enough to be able to work that hard. And you can, so see rule number one. And really what we're trying to do with this tool and technology is not take away or create complexity. We're trying to understand how the choices we're making around training athletes or adapting or their lifestyle is impacting my ability to perform more work. The, the salient feature here is I have 40 women. I have 60 dudes. Which one of those things? We're not going to go hard today because three people went out drinking, right? Or you got a bad night's sleep because your, your child is sick or you had to take a red eye. Suddenly we recognize that, okay, some of these things have a little bit limited utility. Like we still need to train hard today because we're on a soccer team or a football pitch. And I think sometimes we have thought about the Bulgarian model where – like we can, we can control every weight, every poundage, right? You're Romanian and you've got all the drugs on board and you're in this little tiny room of 12 people. Boy, that's really easy to understand inputs and outputs. Now let's start to add some of these other things and it is harder to see inputs and outputs. So that's what we're trying to do with tech. But let's remember that the most important thing is that your coach can tell if you're fried or not by your warm up sets. Did you hop over the fence or did you walk around the fence? You know, you know, as soon as we start moving and you're like, well, I'm slow today, maybe we pull off the volume and we make those decisions in real time. The, the ring should support it. But if you get to a world championship, I, I had a, I had a two-time world champion I'm coaching and facilitating performance coaching with, and he goes on the, the tour and it's cold. He's sleep deprived. His whoop is telling him that he's trashed. And I was like, why are you wearing your whoop? Take your whoop off, throw it away. The whoop is for training. The whoop is not competing because you're going to, you're going to compete on Tuesday, no matter what. So let's go ahead and just control what we can control. So in those situations, we just want to parse through what is essential and more importantly, not interrupt this relationship between coach and athlete that's happening because that's the, the diet. And it's not just coach telling athlete what to do, but athletes saying, coach, I'm not feeling poppy today. I don't feel like I have a step. Hey, let's pull back on this volume. It's a conversation. And that is a new revolution that's happening. How do you handle those days where maybe it is, okay, I'm not feeling it, but we still have to push like that duality of, okay, maybe we do need to pull back, but you know what? Hey, I know you're not, but let's give it a go and see how it works. Well, we're always going to warm up and do the thing, right? But we can, how can we modulate intensity? We can pull off volume. We can pull off reps, right? We can take bigger rest in between. <clears throat> you know, we can look at, say, hey, we're going to go really intense, but lots of rest in between, right? Or, hey, this is going to be a high volume day and moderate intensity. So a lot of that is, I think, it, you, the fear that I hear with coaches and technology is that it's somehow going to short circuit our need to get work done. As you say, hey, I'm not prepared. What do you think, coach? But I come in and we're still going to do the thing. You know, it doesn't mean like you get to take the day off. Dude, you come in and you're cold and shivering. I'm like, why don't we get in the Norma Tech boots or do some zone two or why don't you do a little breathing or mobilizing? There's something to be doing. There's never a day off, right? But I think one of the things that we're 
we should be doing is saying, well, maybe we're not going to go to the weight room today, but we're still going to throw today, or we're going to go through the full warm up and see what happens. And let's, let's see as we ramp up a little bit more. I had a really important uh, understanding of this with Mike Bergner, who is one of my Olympic original Olympic lifting coaches and senseis. And he's had athletes come in and after brutal, brutal high volume days, PR, and, you know, he, and what ends up happening is athletes really warm, thinking really good. And he's like, look, when the frying pan is hot, we cook. And we often miss opportunities, as you're saying, to be surprised. So, you know, we used to say, we used to kid around and cross it and be like, let's let the intensity find you, you know, or, or sometimes when my daughters are feeling super beat up in the gym, I'm like, hey, let's just get under the bar and let's see where that goes today. You know, and some days it is surprising. You really aren't limited by what's going on. I think the more advanced an athlete is, the more she knows how to push and not push and to be able to communicate that with her coaches, right? Because we're like, oh, you're, you're able to handle your typical wattage for, you know, three of these intervals, not your normal seven. <clears throat> That's a good point. How do you handle being able to push the field in a positive, you know, way forward as you have? And then how do you address, like you said, you don't punch down, but how do you in a constructive best manner way, push the field forward by like, okay, that's not the best way of training people. Or how can you keep that curiosity Mm -hmm. mind and continue to, to push things in the right direction? The first thing is always point positive. If you see someone doing something great that you love, talk about it, point it out, you know, I follow, I don't, the number of like stories I put up Joel Jameson in the last year, you know, where I'm like Joel Jameson, nailing the conditioning, nailing heart rate, nailing control. Like, look how great this is. <clears throat> so one is I always point positive and I highlight the people that I love. And then when you come in, when I'm asked to come in, I have kind of a strange job sometimes. Uh, can you come into the FBI? Can you come into this military group? Can you come into the English national soccer team? Can you come into the All Blacks? Can you come into the 49ers? When we get there, we say is, what problems are you trying to solve? I don't want to bring in my plan and just slam you. You're really good at your job. You're, you're, get, you're successful. What problems are you trying to solve? How can I help you solve those problems? Let me show you how I, I think about this. And then that person can make a choice about whether it works or not. I have a, we have our 102 course going on right now, which is our level two assessment course. I have some some really advanced physios in Australia in it and who've been physios for 30 years, working with a lot of teams. And they're like, man, I just tried a different assessment that you do couch stretch instead of Thomas test. And he's like, my athletes could take it home. They got their butt working better in it. We just had better outcomes. I did some hard soft tissue work. They were able to access that position. My athlete who plays pro footy, Australian rules footy texted me and said, Holy crap. I was faster and felt better. And my back didn't hurt. And what I love is, with it, we start with a hypothesis that there's probably a more efficient way to do it and or a more effective way or some thing that I'm missing or I can have a better understanding of why what I'm doing is working. And then we're just we just express curiosity there. So we never come in and say, you're doing it wrong. That's ridiculous. We come in and say, what problems are you trying to solve? Can I help you? It, you know, insulate or 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 spread, you know, spread light on that. And I'll tell you, there are great coaches like Travis Mash, who I can call up and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or Dave Spitz, what do you think about this? Or, you know, Nick Gill. I, mean, I really, my, the network of amazing coaches, I don't know anything about eye tracking. Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button so that way you get notifications of when more content like this gets released. So click that like and subscribe button. And with that, let's get back to the show. 
but I'm working with some athletes who that's really important to. I can call Rachel Balkovec, who is, you know, the first woman strength and conditioning coach in Major League Baseball, who happens to be the first woman manager and be like, who is an expert in eye tracking and be like, can you help me understand this? And I think that's what's really fun is as soon as you start, Stuart McMillan is, you know, one of my all-time favorite coaches on the earth. And he probably is the most successful Olympic coach I know, has the most Olympic medals of any coach in the world in any sport. And bobsled, track and field, it's just really amazing. But if you pin him down, he'll be like, I'm not sure I understand anything. You know, like, yeah, I have to apologize to my athletes yesterday because I was shit. And today I'm going to be a little bit better. And he really has this deep understanding of process, of curiosity. And when you do that, that's great humility. You're going to show up and your athletes are going to get buy-in and you're going to go fast and win world championships. How much do you live within the research of things that it has already been said versus, Hey, being curious and be and kind of probing the problem that is presented in front of you right at that time and place. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I love Lane Norton. The data is stronger than your feelings. And yet someone had to go first doing something. And it doesn't mean, remember, what are my two, what are my two objective measures? Do you have range of motion? Yes or no. If you don't have any hip internal rotation, then your secret scroll program for me isn't working very well, right? Simultaneously, did you go faster? So I have those two things that I'm always looking at, the expression of your range of motion, expressing range of motion, and your biomotor output. And so we should be looking at, you know, can you show me the research that your squat technique works for that 14-year-old on that day? Come on, come on, that's, that's, you're never gonna get any work done. We want to try to understand complex processes for sure in first principles. And then simultaneously, we want to say, you know, is there a way to, you know, what happens when we manipulate rest? Can you show me all the data? That, I mean, you just couldn't get any work done. You couldn't train a group of 20-year-olds that way. So we have to look at the fact that there were so many good coaches in front of us. What's essential? Let's begin there. And then there is time to party and mess around. Let me introduce you to this thing called the warm-up, where I take wild ideas that I love. I'm like, ooh, that's a good idea. How would I integrate that into my program, which I know is working and I know allows my athletes to feel better and go better, right? Because it's not that complicated. Your hip goes in the front of you and it goes behind you and it goes out to the side of you. That's really all the hip does. So in those positions, I can ask, well, what shape are you training? Is that a better training modality, right? And then you can get into the weeds on what you, you what your what your theory is about or your or your methodology as it solves a certain set of problems and that's cool let's let's put your athletes up against my athletes one of the things that i think is important is it's really easy to sit on the internet and be like no 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 and i'm like great i that you totally your value and you're right can i see who you're working with can i see your results can i see your transparency of your model if you're filming yourself in a commercial gym telling everyone else they're wrong, you don't own a training facility or, you know, like you don't haven't worked with a team. You haven't worked at scale. There's no way you can understand what these other coaches are understanding or, or what problems are trying to solve. Can I see your Olympic medals? Can I see all your world championships? Can I see your, I just need to see them at some point. You need to show me what the results of your work is. Otherwise it's just feelings and you may have really valid points, but shouting it is not going to get you invited to the table. That's actually something that John Wellborn talked about back when we had him on the show and he talked about how, you know, his, what he was doing with power. Full athlete. disclosure, Wellborn is one of my best friends, just full disclosure. 
Good. And, and so he, yeah, he talked about the fact that, you know, what he did with, uh, I think he called it football. Uh, it was football CrossFit where he said like what you were doing and what he was doing, it was, it was the exact opposite of what you just said. It was people that are not just sitting around doing nothing. It was coaches that are actually working with clients yeah. and people and getting feedback in real time, because at the end of the day, that's what it's really about. Not just pontificating about I think he had said it before, like, yeah, Cal Dietz is isometric, like, short. But who have you actually worked with and what have you seen? That's right. And when you run into someone like Cal Dietz, who's running a university program, has lots and lots of medals, then you're like, huh, <clears throat> what does Cal Dietz understand? Because he continually puts out monsters. So what you should do is say, hey, coach, can I come watch you coach for a week? Can I just show up at five in the morning and watch you coach and just be a fly on the wall? And guess what? 100 out of 100% of the time, coaches will be like, hell yeah. Banana bread at work? Hell yeah. <laughs> it's act, it's You said the 49ers. It's supposed to be pumpkin bread, right? And didn't you just see that most recently with <laughs> no, Kittle no. and them? It's pumpkin bread. It's so good. It really you is. Know, um, you know, uh, let me talk. Uh, the Niners are really have an impressive – uh, strength and conditioning staff. I just want to shout them out for being so amazing. So amazing that very few guys go outside and have their own special guy because the Niners staff are so great. You can be fed at the Niners facility year round. They are sneaky. They are creating really, really good culture and monsters. Yeah, no. And I mean, our, um, Kier Wynnum Flat, the founder and uh, prior owner of Strength Coach Network, has been out there a couple times. And so, yeah, we're going to have to get somebody from the Niners uh, on the show here again. What are your thoughts on strength being added to dysfunction? Because you kind of talked about that before when you said first two questions like, hey, do you have the range of motion? If no, that original thought of don't add strength to dysfunction from the FMS, how mm. would you handle somebody saying that? We wouldn't get anything done, would we? Correct. <laughs> Thank you. That's my point. So so what it means is we're just going to squat a little higher today. That's all it means. Like, no problem. People love to poop on Joel Jameson. Not Joel Jameson, uh, Joel Seidman. Yeah. And let me just say that his athletes don't dump their knees. Their arches don't collapse. They don't do weird stuff with their backs. One of the things that I think we could look at, and again, approaching people with curiosity, huh? You know, I don't think anyone has the secret squirrel program. You know, it's weird that the Chinese get people to the Olympics. Americans get people to the Olympics. The Romance, I'm like, we all, we all lift and have different styles, but man, they're all, it all looks the same at the end. It looks really the same. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is that we can continue to manage the first order of business when someone doesn't have access to range is to not let them, default into positions that are less useful, you know, positions that, and what you, you could say for a while, you could say, Hey, that's compensation. But even, you know, the original language we all heard was fault error. Right. You know, and I'm like, uh, this may be the only way the athlete can move. So is that really a fault? So what we can say is this is a compensation. You're working around a problem, but you might say dysfunctional strategy or less effective, whatever doesn't hurt your feelings is fine with me. <clears throat> But what I'm looking for is transfer. And I'm looking for specifically that the universal principles of lifting actually transfer to the universal principles of sport. There was a old, old football coach I was working with and he was like, I like the bench. It times, it ties the arms to the body. And I've, you may have heard me say that before. And he didn't really know what, but he knew that 
kids who could bench could break the crap out of the bar and were wickedly stable. And when they tackled, their elbows didn't flare and they didn't get their arms ripped off and they didn't break tackles because they could grab someone and create high levels of torque and rotation and make that shoulder stable. And they were gnarly to fight. That was a gnarly person. So here is a coach who's like, this bench press doesn't just make me stronger. It teaches me principles of better motion. That's really stinking cool. And when we start to go into the movements, we were like, oh, that's really, I get it. Why we like to use rings and why we can use dumbbells because it allows us to create better, more stable postures of higher intensity that can allow me to transfer my skill to other things. So if my athletes are always turning their feet out and dump on their arches in their crappy Nike shoes or whatever they're wearing, you know, their, their vanity shoes, didn't mean to throw Nike under the bus, everyone take it down a notch. And, um, and all of a sudden you're like, well, why are you cutting that way? You know, because no one, no triple jumper lands with their foot turned out like a duck. No one cuts with their foot like a duck. It just, you can't do that in effectively position. So what we ask is, why are you training? Well, it turns out this is a, this is, this will get me banned on the internet. You're gonna love this. Squatting is a low power movement. You can do whatever you want when you squat. You want to turn your feet out, slam your knees in. It's low power. It doesn't matter. It's squatting. Look at one of the highest rates of force production, highest power outputages in all of sport. It's the second push or second pull in Olympic lifting, right? People will maybe agree. Maybe it's not the highest. It's pretty high. It's a lot of power. What's up, strength coaches? Want to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our sponsor, Team Builder. Team Builder is your one-stop shop for online training platform needs as a coach. With Team Builder, you're going to be able to program for your athletes, whether they're in person or remote. Using Team Builder, not only will you be able to program for your athletes, but there are special features such as the leaderboard and locking training with wellness questionnaires. With the leaderboard, you can have an exercise performed that day, whether it be a lift, a sprint, or a jump, and scores can be updated in real time and projected on a TV in the training. Wellness questionnaires can be used at the beginning of training, and your athletes will have to fill them out prior to being able to train. This ensures that as a coach, you're being able to collect quality data before the athletes train. So, if you're interested in Team Builder, click the the link down below and find out more information. Let's get back to the show. Look at the foot position most of those athletes choose. It's a much straighter foot position. It's almost like they shove their knees out to create a really stable position for the hip. The ankle doesn't collapse. The art, you can't tip the foot over. The foot is flat as they're pushing through the ground. And all of a sudden you're like, huh, why is that foot in that position? Because it's the only position that allows us to handle high speeds. Then they receive that in this ridiculous ass to grass spot. And it doesn't matter because it's a low power position. So what we can start to say is do the shapes that we're training transfer more effectively. And that gets us beyond, Hey, strength solves all problems. I have seen enough really big, strong kids get injured and been enough big, strong kids who didn't win the world championship, but I've seen enough skilled, big, strong kids who rule the world. And it points me at a, a coach I want to bring on everyone's radar is Franz Bosch. If you're not following Franz Bosch, look at what Franz is doing. And you might not use his, his bags, but look at how he talks about strength conditioning as coordination practice. We were just talking to Tom, Dr. Tommy Wood at University of Washington, and there's a direct correlation between functionality and strength and longevity and brain function, not just body mass, right? So not just having like steroids and BFR for everyone, but like a coordinated body. Cause it turns out that coordination piece is why we're training. So strength and conditioning is really just coordination training with resistance. 
<clears throat> no, I mean, amen to that. And how much of the time is it going to be, maybe somebody has that pain because there's something anatomically that won't show up unless there's an MRI, but how often are you able to actually assess that because you don't have access to it? Well, what we can say is you're absolutely right. And what we can say is, um, does this position transfer to a whole bunch of sports and other positions? So if this is a dead end technique and it's just about moving the most weight up and down a bar, that's not sport. But if it's really about jumping and landing and cutting, I mean, watch people, people will not turn their feet out and do a, a you just won't, you'll see ridiculous squatting techniques with feet. And those are power lifters. That's fine. It's a, it's a sport that allows them to hit a certain depth and do a thing. And then do you, have you watched like no diss? Watch Larry Wheels run. Watch Mark Bell sprint. What yeah. you can ask is, wow, I'm not sure the strongest athletes in the world are still our most athletic. So we start to see, and again, I'm not, I want to be Larry Wheels when I grow up. I mean, really, that guy's a monster. Mm -hmm. But the, the point is we can start to ask how effective, what is my goal? And what are my training helping my goal? And I think that really helps us to get to the heart of the matter because if I'm just trying to get stronger in the gym, that's recursive training. And that is what a little bit what CrossFit suffers from. I do more pull-ups so I can do more pull-ups so I can do more pull-ups. That's super cool. And I never, ever have enough pull-ups and I can never do enough pull-ups. And pull-ups are too, too, too terrible a sport to even mention. Pull-ups are a shitty sport. And so at some point we want to ask, did all these pull-ups transfer to me swimming more effectively, playing soccer more effectively? There's got to be, what's my goal? My goal is to play my sport and to be better at my sport. And I think we forgot what strength and conditioning is all about. And it's about the application of that during season. My goal is to just keep you playing. And my strength training looks a little bit different during the season because my goal is to keep you fresh and modular. But then I get out of that and I'm back into sports preparation mode. And maybe I open up ranges and maybe I work on skills. Then I go to sports specific mode where I'm just flip flopping back and forth between preparation and season. And what you see is that the only goal is to prepare the athlete to be coached by the team coach. <clears throat> Talking about you know, being strong and not always being the best athlete. One of the questions that we've talked about on the show before is, is somebody strong because they're fast or fast because they're strong? Which one do you think it is? Ooh. Well, the real question, who someone, someone posted recently, I think they were maybe talking about rugby. I watch a lot of rugby on the internet. And, um, you know, they were just saying that um, let's not ever give up our athleticism. Um, I was, uh, in conversation with Coach Harry Mara, who's one of the best decathlete coaches of all time, heptathlete coaches, probably the, arguably the most successful coach in that domain ever. And towards the season, he would just carry a medicine ball around. And he would say, well, I think you're strong enough. I mean, this sounds like Bondarchuk right here. And what we would see is he'd be like, look, it's really fun to add another kilo to the bench press, but what you really need to do is throw. And it's interesting that Dan John even is like, come train with me. You're going to see how much we throw and how little we lift. We're going to hit a few key lifts and then we're going to go throw and throw and throw and throw and throw. So, you know, to answer your question or get back, you know, the, how do we develop athleticism? Can athleticism be developed in the gym or is the, as athleticism best developed in the gym? And suddenly you suddenly realize probably we need to go take a Frisbee and go play some some ultimate frisbee if we want to develop athleticism and suddenly just because you can bench press 300 you know 200 kilos does that necessarily mean you're going to be first picked for my kickball team so you know that and i and again i still want that kid who can have a big bench to throw the throw the you know shot put a long way 
comma, how do we develop athleticism? And I think the gym sometimes muddles that because it's so easy to quantify and so difficult to quantify athleticism. <clears throat> That's a good point. Um, backtracking a little bit, what, you know, how did you get into this field of, you know, being a DPT and getting into athletics and human performance? Like what was the genesis for you? Did you always know that this was going to be a field that you wanted to get into? Oh, good question. So first of all, I started out as a broken athlete. So I paddled on the U.S. canoe and kayak team, and I paddled myself right off the U.S. canoe and kayak team with a <laughs> neck injury. <laughs> Suddenly my hand wouldn't hold the paddle anymore, and I couldn't turn my head, and that ended my professional paddling career after a couple of seasons because I caused that injury. It was just an overuse injury. And um, that literally, you know, the, the good old days of strength and conditioning were let's go as far as we can sport, let's go as far as we can, as hard as we can, and when you break, we'll back off, take a little rest, and we'll go a little further next time. That was literally the official model. So um, that was my background. I grew up as an athlete, paddled on the national team, got injured, realized that I needed to ask some different questions because I looked around and was like, every woman on the national team has had shoulder surgery. So is that a feature of being on the national team? Should we? Should my daughters just go ahead and have their shoulder surgery now when they're 16 so they can get on the national team. And what you realize is, wow, can we not prevent any of this? Or is this just a feature of the sport? Like NFL has an injury rate of hundred percent. Well, let's just go ahead and get injured and, and fulfill our destiny. So going to physio school, I knew something was there, but before I started physio school, I started work with an Olympic lifting coach, Jim Schmitz in you know, South San Francisco in uh, very early two thousands. And what I'll say is I knew that there was something to how the best athletes in the world and track athletes were lifting and training. And there's something I needed to learn. I go to physio school and I really struggled with understanding what I was learning as a, as a, in this really good physio program, a really excellent physio program in California, Australian based, heavy manual work, very progressive, not, I mean, this is like, we have masters are my daily instructors. I'm going to the world center for PNF. We're doing, you know, at Kaiser Vallejo, we're doing, you know, we're doing rehab on people who are one day out from cerebral vascular accidents. And it's really like, I got to see all the shit and all, all the while I'm like, this has nothing to do with sport. This is a different language. It's a totally parallel path. And you can see is my second year of physio school, I opened CrossFit gym, the 21st CrossFit. And I really struggled to understand what I was learning over here with my experience managing a population and returning them to power and solving all their pain problems. Because people would show up and they would be like, yeah, I hurt my shoulder in NOM or my ACL in college. And, you know, my knee hurts after this big run this weekend. Or, hey, I don't like to bench because it hurts. my Like, I, I, the coach was, just, I was left holding the bag and all that bullshit. And, you know, what I realized is like, oh, we have to change this model. And we're going to have to move all of these things out behind the wall and put them in the hands of the coach and the athlete if we're going to be serious about this. Because what ended up happening is people would just wait until it was so bad, then they'd go see the doctor, right? And then, and that model doesn't always work if your doctor isn't right at, you know, deadlifting next to you. So that's, that's how I got into this. It was always through the lens of performance. You know, I grew up in a, a small town in Germany where we had a ski team and we raced mountain bikes and we kayak raced and we all played soccer and we did as we all played bath. We did as many sports as we could. And we were always going to camps and training with the world champion skiers. And we just had access to a lot of sort of this early thing. So always very 
high level of sort of emphasis on technicality, you know, that we were having conversations around pressure and technique in the skis. And suddenly that, that really resonated with me that, oh, there's so much feeling and technical ability that I can develop as a resource to become competent solving a skill. <clears throat> that makes sense. What advice would you have for young coaches now that might be listening to this, hearing you and, and knowing the background then? Like, what would you say to anybody that's trying to get started in the field now? You need so many reps. You're going to suck. Don't worry about it. Start coaching. You don't have to be the perfect coach. The, the things we're asking coaches to be able to do now, like it was a lot easier to be a strength coach 20 years ago. Yeah. Because, you know, you know, the, you could go on and watch Joe, get Joe DeFranco's CD, his DVD, <laughs> where he would film an entire session and you would get to see what that looked like. All the ugly reps, all the athletes making, not moving perfectly. But you'd be like, oh, he's training football players. I've never seen a strength coach train an actual football player soup to nuts. Mark Bell started filming all of his powerlifting sessions. That's amazing. I mean, that really is remarkable. But also, one of the things that I did early on was I had the good luck to be able to reach out to coaches and have them talk to me. And I didn't shoot them an email asking, I would say, can I schedule time with you? Can I come see you? How can I, you know, like, it wasn't just like, feed me, feed me, feed me, you know? And, you know, I picked up the phone one time and called Mark Ripito's gym and he spent 45 minutes with me discussing how he thought about the adductors in the squat and why stiff adductors were a problem in the squat. And I remember thinking, if Mark Ripito can do that for me, I'm going to have to do that for a generation. And then I would go sleep on a friend's couch and go volunteer my weekends for Coach Bergner, who I taught Olympic lifting. And I remember seeing him there and being like, holy shit, I have so much to learn about Olympic lifting. I'm watching a master teach Olympic lifting to a group of people. Like, I don't know. He has 15,000 skill transfer exercises for one problem. You know, I, I don't even know what the problem is yet. You know, so, but I did that over and over again. And what I would say is you cannot become competent by yourself. You need to have coaches around you. You need to train together. You need to go make sojourns and go watch the best coaches in the world. You need to be curious and respectful, and they will give you all the things, all the rope you need to hang yourself. They will give it to you. How do you handle the two then roles of people that are maybe working in the private sector of balancing being a CEO and v being a coach, like which hat to wear and how to do a great job doing both because they're different skills? Come back to that hyper-locality thing. I think the internet has made us think that we have to be relevant in 50 states and 27 countries, hmm. and you don't. You just have to be the best coach in your school, in your gym, and that's all you need to do, and people will seek you out. And, um, you know, the first and foremost is I hope you're obsessed, you know, and it, what you're seeing is a feature of our mess. And what you're seeing is that all these young coaches who look are confused. I'm like, well, that's my fault. And that's your fault because we didn't help them understand what was essential. Right. That, you know, I just saw an article on, um, New York times about fitness information for teenagers on TikTok being just a hot mess of, you know, health and fitness advice. And it really is very, very confusing for kids to come out and say, I can't, who's an expert. I can't tell you, you look like an expert. You're in the trappings of an expert. Who are the experts? So you should follow and listen to, and, you know, I think you need to read a lot of books and I think you need to go to people's courses. We don't do like to do that anymore. It puts us out. You know, there was a time 
in the 2000s where we all traveled a lot, maybe once a month to go see someone or work with someone or put someone on and try something out, you know, and, um, you know, I think you also need to be able to speak it. And, you know, if you haven't box squatted ever, <laughs> well, let me introduce you to box squatting for a while. Why don't you do a cycle of box squatting? The kids that, um, who, uh, who is it? I don't think it's range of strength. Um, uh, blank, uh, apologies to the person, but the guy's just like, Hey, I only, I only half field squatted for a year. I did everything on a half field squat. And he's like, I got so strong. It's so fun. And people are like, what's a half field strong squat. I'm like, well, there you go. You know? And so I think what's we're crushed with tools and tactics right now. And it's difficult for people to uh, see what's what it's going to take a second for you to be worth a shit. I just turned 50 this year. You hey. can tell my don't give a shit attitude, my gray beard. But what you're seeing is I literally finally, finally, I'm a good beginner. Like now I I'm like, Oh, I have something to contribute. I'm a beginner and really trying to understand what the experts are doing and these other people I get to work with. It's really extraordinary. It's really, this is a, this is a good life's work. You just need to go, go to the gym, be early, be cheerful, help people solve their goals. You'll get rich. That's actually, it's interesting you say that because one of the questions I had for you is like, what still motivates you? I mean, you, you have a long laundry list of, you know, things that you've done and people that you've worked with, like what still motivates you to, to do what you do? Hey, this is all I can do. <laughs> I don't have another skill. So this is it. I want to keep the lights <laughs> on the house. So that's rationalization. Um, I'm obsessed with this stuff. This is the way I was, you know, um, you know, working with this team uh, at this university. I started asking questions. The Women's World Cup just happened. I see that we've got catapult data on all those soccer players. Right. How, how far they sprinted, what their number of accelerations were, all the data on GPS data. I go back to this team and I'm like, at this university, I'm like, hey, um, so what's the data here? It doesn't exist. What do you mean it doesn't exist? No one knows. We've never looked at it before. And I'm like, well, no one has? No, in the history of this sport, no one really has. I call up my friends who are experts in this. Maybe they did some in this Australia, but we can't find it. No one really knows. And you're like, holy crap. So here's a problem that I'm suddenly becoming, you know, feeding myself on becoming a sports monitoring expert. So I suddenly call my friends who are sports monitoring experts. How do I do this? What, what, what should I look at? They're like, you're going to have to invent this, you know, because I try not to be a jerk all the time. You know, my friends at the, you know, are like golden state warriors with the head of their sports monitoring. Why don't you come and hang out with him for a day? You know? And I'm like, that thing's really like, a, I learn a lot doing that. So I get to show up with my hat in my hand and be a beginner again and again and again. And that I can do the rest of my life. I think that's the recipe for just be, be, being curious. How do you think and useful? Why do you think people are, uh, you know, strength and conditioning coaches that now work in these high performance uh, settings where they have so many different people to work with? What do you think is the reason that they're going to be anti beginner mindset? Oh, I don't think they're anti beginner mindset. I think everyone is in those high performance environments is like, oh, I'm so glad I'm part of the team. Uh, there's no way I could solve all these problems myself. And they realize that suddenly, by work, this person working with a nutritionist, they solved all, all these knee problems and all these readiness problems and all these sleep problems, right? And you're like, oh man, I better go learn something about that. So I'm not rate limited by this athlete's nutrition. I think right now, one of the most important things you can be doing is working with a high performance psychologist on mindset. And um, shout out to Lenny Wiersma, um, who, who is at Cal, who is a friend and mentor. I think he's brilliant. Um, I'm a huge Michael Gervais fan. 
Um, you know, his brand new book, FOPO, Fear of Other Others' Opinions, just came out. I think some of the psychology, Brett Bartholomew, art of coaching, being able to be better at communicating. Suddenly we're like, oh, man, this has nothing to do with how many reps of squatting we're going to do. Has everything to do with creating an environment where that athlete feels safe and seen and recognized so that she can go out and, and stomp on the world. And it's going to take a minute. So what I'm proposing, everyone, is not a scarcity mindset, but a real opportunity to expand our, our footprint and become real performance experts. I want the strength coach to be the very center of the performance hub because no one has more time with their athletes. No one has more interactions with the performance coach, the physio, the, you know, the, the position coach, the nutritionist. Suddenly, we, we can be the person who is the center. And uh, that's why you're seeing people who are becoming directors of high performance really are versed in all of these skills. Does the terminology strength and conditioning coach, sports performance coach, does that matter in your opinion? Or are we getting, you know, caught up in minutia? I don't know. You know, it's a fair question. You know, at some point we have to, um, you know, what is the role? You know, so sometimes we say performance, I'm like, your performance coach, can I see who you're working on their performance with? You know, once again, you know, I'm like, oh, you work in Formula One, right? Okay, I understand that, right? I understand what inputs and outputs are. So, you know, am I a physical therapist? I don't know. I don't really describe myself as one. I don't really think of one. I say I was trained as a physical therapist, hmm. but I would say, I, you know, the most important thing is I'm probably a high performance coach. And what does that mean? I don't even know. What, what are your problems that you're trying to solve? Let me see if I can help you solve them. You know, but strength and conditioning is the tool set to understand nutrition, readiness, fear. Um, you know, it's a place to rebuild people's confidence. It's a place to develop capacities. Um, you know, we find it's easy to find holes. We found uh, I found some conditioning holes in a team I was working with, and we brought in a bunch of just echo bikes and started putting people deep into these psychological pain holes. And we just found gigantic gaps in this team at these really, really high, you know, 10 second, 15 second intervals, you know, just not a lot of capacity to change direction, be powerful, repeat that. And then that boy, that brought up a lot of psychology of boy, I better save this energy. I don't, you know, and my point is, when you approach these things with humility and curiosity, it doesn't mean you're not competent. I'm not saying that, but you just come in and say, every day I'm going to make a hypothesis with my athletes and the people I work with, and we're going to test that hypothesis today, and we're going to recalibrate the hypothesis, and we're going to test it, and the big experiment is the game. What's your biggest aha moment in the last two, three years, or maybe five years if you're like, there's a really good one from a little bit further back? Oh, boy. Um that's a good question. Uh, and a question that I, I don't know if I, you know, I feel like I'm in kind of a constant state of awe. And um, <clears throat> I think what's interesting is to see how these fads come and go, you know, breathing is so hot and then now it's not so hot. And what I would ask you is, well, what did you end up taking from that? You know, we found out that we could look at position. We could use it for desensitization. We, we use it to calm. Like there was a whole lot of things we got out of that that have stuck around. Um, you know, I, I think the recalibration of recognizing that the most important thing is the person and then the person doing the sport and then everything is in service to that. And I think that's really a fun way to, 
to approach. I, I, you know, um, I don't know if I've had anything sort of blow my doors off, you know, because I'm around mutants and mutant coaches all the time. So I mean, really, you know, it's so fun to go work with some of these university teams because I get to sit there and during games, I have no skin in the game. My work has been done. I just get to watch world-class coaches coach. And that is the coolest thing ever. Is there anything that you've then taken and been like, Hey, you know what? I don't do this anymore. And you're like, uh, um, I just stopped doing it because it was a principle that I learned back in the day. And maybe you're like, you know, I removed this from my training recently. Not really. You know, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, I don't do a lot of corrective work. That's just my own bias. And the reason is, um, I feel like I, with modern strength and conditioning, I have so many tools to regress and progress movements in the language of strength and conditioning. You know what I mean? We can go single leg, we can do Bulgarian. We can just like, there's so many ways to put the hip into extension and lift that I don't know if I need a whole bunch of single leg bridging to get there again. That's a tool. But what I tend to value is say, well, can this exercise that we're doing, if it, if it gives me, allows my athletes to reconnect to their heaving snatch balance or snatch, every, we're going to do it every day, you know? But um, when, we, when we tend to sort of get in the weeds of complexity, I, I think, let me answer your question this way. Sorry, everyone. I appreciate a minimalist approach more and more that we can maximize physiologic adaptation with fewer choices and still have the athlete be fresh enough to go outside and do something. And oftentimes we see really good athletes having programmed a lot of busy work that makes them feel like they're doing something. It makes them feel like they have agency and that can have merit, but those exercises do not scale. We cannot value them. What is a clamshell PR? What is your clamshell PR? Can you tell me what it is? And suddenly you're like, okay, I, I see your point, Kelly. I, you know, I, I failed with a 400 pound clamshell load. Yeah. And what we see is, well, that was a one rep max. I wanted a five rep max there. And you, once again, it just doesn't hold. It doesn't mean that that's not an appropriate tool, but a lot of the, I think one of the things that happened was a lot of the rehabilitation exercises snuck into strength and conditioning. And they have utility when people can't move or we're trying to babysit a joint or let a tissue heal, but sometimes they have less utility. I saw a phenomenon in Europe where I saw a lot of people get into functional training and I was like, okay, we're now going to swing kettlebells and do burpees and oh, you fell apart under a little metabolic load and you weren't fast and you landed like crap as soon as you're breathing hard. So all your functional training actually didn't make you a better athlete. It made you really good at doing things that looked like recursive functional training. You got better at functional training. You did not get better at, you know, moving a weight, a distance time or generating force. So I think um, when I start to see the masters start to ask, what can we take away so that that athlete can have more time to herself, can have more time on the court. We can be a lot more sort of nuanced in that. And I think that has been the thing I'm moving for, further to. So through the lens of, I have this, 15 year old daughter. She's a sophomore. She's five ten, six foot wingspan. She's a goalie. She's a pretty good water polo goalie. Um, I think she's got what it takes to play in college. If that's her desire, she wants to, um, she's a mutant. She really just like is, is a psychopath in the goal and between her sports training and schoolwork and still being a 15 year old girl, dad is trying to figure out 
where are we going to lift? What does it look like? And it looks like a lot of Olympic lifting training. It's very essential. Like we do one or two lifts, we work, we get it, we're done. We work on pull-ups and handstands and we do some classic, you know, strength work on the sides, but though we don't do a lot of like, you know, wasting time, we get right under the load. We, you know, and then in between sets, we do something else. And I really am thinking, how can we do less with more? And then really, boy, you, you really have to have a strong case not to understand Olympic lifting or basic barbell training because it's so effective. I mean, you just talked about something that I wrote down where it's like, hey, back in the day, your warm up was light loads of the movement you're going to do versus nowadays, like you have almost have that 15, 20 minute warm up. And it's, you know, you talked about the breathing and people just being overly spending too much time in the warm up is something yeah. that I have noticed. Yeah, yeah. How is that something that you would handle being the ready state guy, like for lack of a um, I feel like I've phrased this question poorly, but I think you understand what I'm trying to get across. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, one of the things is if you've been sitting on the couch and then you're going to go out and we're going to snatch, it's going to take a minute, <laughs> right? Yeah. To get you warmed up and prepared for that. Um, you know, when we ran a gym for 17 years, so I just want everyone to know I ran a gym for 17 years. Like if you run a gym for 17 years, shut the fuck up. And, and I say that because I got, we had all the good athletes in there. We had moms and dads. We had CrossFit games, people who were trying to go to CrossFit games. And it's that workout starts at 545 and people have been awake for eight minutes. And I was like, dude, how are we going to get any work done this next hour? You've been awake for eight minutes. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you're not even ready for this. So in the dream world, we are getting to the bar fast. Look at how the Olympic lifters are, are warming up. That's what I want. You grab a bar, you start moving in between sets. You're like, uh, I can't access that. Or I do something or I move around a little bit different. Then I'm back under the bar. And I think now as an old person, check this out. You know, your master's athlete, when your shingles vaccine interrupts your, your bench press, I was like, ah, that sucks. Um, the, the idea is in between, I would want to, I'd rather have my athletes take way more warm up sets. And look, the masters have said that for a long time, 10 sets of 10 with the bar. Like what, wh why are you in a hurry to make this heavy? Are you afraid that another jump between 315 and 350 is going to mess you up? Or, you know, I, look, I, I sometimes go out to uh, my personal deadlifting. Like I'm going to deadlift 500 every year for the rest of my life. That's one of my personal goals. And I, deadlifting more than 500 does not make me a better middle-aged bike rider in my neighborhood. It doesn't, but I love deadlifting. So every couple of weeks I'm like, have I touched 500? Have I touched 500? Can I touch it? But sometimes I'm like, well, one plate, two plates, three plates, four plates, five plates, boom. You know what I mean? And I'm like, that's really crappy programming. And when I really have the time, I just take a lot of warm up sets and then I mess around and I jump rope. And then I hang from the bar and then I work on skills. And oh, yeah, I saw this cool thing. This came out of the, you know, this camp or I like this. And I, and I use the time between my sets to play, to explore my body, to warm up, to move. And I think when you do that, it doesn't have to be 10 minutes on the bike, do dynamic warm up, like quit that. You know, um, the first time I heard something about this, people are going to just fast forward this whole episode. I'm just rambling. <laughs> Um, Bella Caroli, his male gymnast used to warm up playing indoor soccer. So we have the, one of the, you know, at the time, this Romanian superstar coach who may be a, a psychopath and uh, abusive, but neither here nor there. Um, 
his his guys really got hot and sweaty by playing a little game. Like, oh, talk about arousal and people being community and interacting and being like you're in a team and getting hot and touching positions. That's what warm up should be. And so suddenly we can turn this gym time, which is like warm up, wah, wah, into this is really fun. What the hell is coach going to do today? A uh, sportsmith had a great article. Sportsmith HQ, HQ had a great article written by one of their coaches. And I, I apologize. I don't know his name who worked with a lot of national team volleyball teams, China, all like, and he just recorded all his warmups and it looks like a bunch of buffoonery and fun and gamification. He gives us athletes a chance to compete and sign me up for that. You know what I mean? I think we can show our, our creativity and expertise there during our warmups. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I did that back in the day at Towson with, uh, you know, handball and small groups oh. and even, even something as small as, uh, the head, shoulders, knees, toes, cone game. Like, you just let the athletes like laugh and giggle. And then it's like, holy cow, coach, like I'm mentally awake. Now all of a sudden I'm physically more awake. And it's crazy how that taps you into. And the gym is, wait a minute, a fun place. Yeah. This is the great, like the music is on, you know, I'm like, grab a barbell. And everyone's like, F the barbell. And like, we're doing Turkish getups and crazy things. And we're not going to put the bar down for 10 minutes. If you put the bar down for the next 10 minutes, you're going to go run. And like, man, where it's zercher, bicep, tricep. Like, I'm like, what, how can I torture this human being with this barbell for the next 10 minutes? Everyone's really good to go after that. You know what I mean? I just think that there's so many ways, you know, where I, I'm like, grab the medicine balls and everyone's like, shit, this is going to suck. And it's so fun to, you know, play playing Hoover ball and throw the ball around and bounce and throw and toss and be athletes who then quickly are able to get under the bar and load. Last question I'll ask you before I want to respect your time, but what is something that people don't know about writing a book that you would give them a piece of advice before they ever consider doing it? Um, oh, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> um, I think what's great about writing a book, ultimately, is it's going to force you to really systematize your thinking. And that's really great. Um, I listened to Greg Cook say once, someone asked him, like, hey, I'm thinking about writing a book. He's like, if you haven't already started, you're not going to write a book. He's like, I wrote my first book when my, I was a divorcee. My newborn baby was on the bed asleep. It's like 11 o'clock at night, and I'm writing on the dryer. And so if you're not writing already, you're not going to write a book. So start writing and talking and, and practicing. Start writing blog posts. You know, really just like think writing the goals in the book, the book just ends up being a way of service of your to formalize and organize your your thoughts. And I will say that's really important. I think the book has become more important now than it has before. Um, you know, Ma Strength just put out a Chinese weightlifting book. I think it's eventually if you like you're really, really good and you're sure that you have a system, you need to put in a book. You can't write about a blog. You can't put it on the Internet. You need to write a book. Appreciate that, man. I feel like I could talk with you all day, but want to respect your time. I thank nerds, you for coming on. Because yeah. my strength nerds, this is all I want to do and all I talk about. I really, this is all, this is, this is the, the greatest conversation you can have is sitting down with strength coaches. People don't understand, but this, this is what is moving the world forward. The gym is the last safe place on the planet. I agree. And that's my whole goal here is to continue to make strength and conditioning, push it forward. So that way coaches can be better educated so they can be more dialed in with their athletes when they're with them. Because I mean, helping athletes achieve the best version of themselves is kind of the goal. No. Yeah. If we, um, there are a lot of ways to get to learn your, to know yourself. And I just think sport is the best way. 
it's the fastest, the best way. You know, my daughter, last thing I'll say is my daughter was at, uh, is a freshman at University of Michigan and uh, went out to the, one of the big games. They're playing Purdue this a couple weeks ago, and watching 110,000 people chant, singing Mr. Brightside, the start of the fourth quarter. You know, it's like a light show. For that one moment, we're all united by sport. I mean, go to a premier soccer game, go to an Olympics, and just feel what's possible sport. You know, that and that, the small model is that is what we can reproduce every day in the gym. Amen to that. That's a mic drop moment. Um, we're going to link all your stuff down below, but thank you very much for spending uh, an hour plus with us. We greatly appreciate it. My pleasure.